Hello and welcome to the OTP, the one true podcast for fanfiction readers, writers, and lovers. I'm your host and mod, Enthusiasm Girl. So, this is the very first episode of the podcast, and the topic is going to be Fanfiction 101. My contributors today are the amazing and wonderful Katie Mayo and DJ Clausen, and author and fanthropologist J.M. Fry. Um, I designed it to be a sort of introduction to the vast array of fic-related topics that I'm anticipating that this podcast is going to cover. Uh, but before we get into the topic today, I want to introduce myself and tell you a little bit about this podcast and its mission statement and its goals. So, who am I? Well, I've been reading and writing fanfiction since I was a teenager, so for more than 15 years. For more than 10 years now, I've been a part of the wonderful, growing and thriving convention community up here in Canada, and I've talked to dozens of fanfiction writers and readers about fanfiction. I've sat on panels, I've organized them, and I've moderated them. At a certain point, I realized that the kind of conversations I was having with people, both at conventions and on Tumblr and in the comments or reviews section of AO3 or fanfiction.net, were one of my favorite things in the entire universe. Fanfiction is, like cosplay or gaming, a lifestyle choice for a lot of people in fandom. A lot of female people in fandom, which makes it easy for the mainstream to dismiss it or make fun of it. Too often I felt like fanfiction was being talked about only how the mainstream wanted to frame it, as a place full of smut, bad fic, or the weirdest people on the internet. But we who read and write fanfiction know that that's absolutely not true. There's an incredible community of people who support the OTW and AO3, who make the fanfiction world such an incredible safe space for female, LGBT, or young voices, who support one another and do it out of the goodness of their own hearts, who just love reading and writing and sharing what they love with other people. This podcast is called The OTP for a reason. It's because my one true pairing right now is the fanfiction community slash this podcast. I really think that they were made for each other and deserve to be together. I want to create a community-driven podcast where we have insightful, deep conversations about how fanfiction can be transformative, not just in the sense of transforming the original source stories we write about, but in the sense of transforming us. I want to talk about why we ship and why we beta and why we write. I want to bring new people into fanfiction and combine the voices of people who've been doing it for decades with the voices of those who've been doing it for a few months. I want this podcast to represent what the fanfiction community does, an amazing place to meet new people, have great conversations, find amazing stories, and transform ourselves. So welcome to the OTP. We're going to start at the very beginning, and the question I want to pose to the three contributors is, how do you define fanfiction? And we'll start with you, JM. Fanfiction is, um, it is basically any work of art, so not just fanfiction, but like fan crafting or fan works in general, is any work of art that is created out of an intense interest or passion uh, about uh, copyrighted media text. Um, so Henry Jenkins said, said it best that uh, fan fiction is what happens in a world where the uh, folk are no, no longer in control of the stories, but the corporations are. Um, it's sort of this attempt to reclaim that sort of fireside chat, telling stories, adding to the Robin Hood myth, um, you know, like Shakespeare did with King Lear and stuff. Uh, just taking, telling stories about ourselves by co-opting other characters' voices. Katie, what do you think about that question? How do I follow that, though? <laughs> um, I, I made notes for this, and I just wrote the uh, fan works uh, created based on existing works, being movie, TV, books, anime, video games, real people, etc., that kind of take the ideas of the original source and expand on them and build them in ways that the original con like content wouldn't do. Now, I'd just like to take a moment here, because you both brought it up, to distinguish between fan fiction and fan works. Because fan works is actually the broader term that encompasses things like fan art and other types of things that fans like to engage in, like podcasting, that interact in some way with the stories we love. Um, usually when you're talking about fan fiction, you're getting a little more specific talking about fictional written stories. Just to make that clear, in case anyone listening was wondering about our usage of fan works versus fan fiction. DJ, did you have a definition of fanfiction that you wanted to share? Yeah, I'm a pretty strict literalist. Fanfiction is fiction created by fans 
Uh, I'm a big believer of arterial intent, of the arterial ownership of the work. So if you have a work, like a TV show or a comic or a book that someone wrote, they're the author, they're the origin of the story, and people who are fans of the story who write fiction, because they're inspired by the story, that's fan fiction. Now, one thing I also want to do is talk a little bit about fan fiction versus canon, and the way that for a lot of people, fan fiction is where they share their head canons and what those are exactly. Um, when we talk about canon, we're of course talking about the actual text of the original story that you're working off of when you're creating fan fiction, the universe that the original author has created, uh, things that the original author has decreed are a part of that world, and the universe from their perspective are considered canon. I do want to define the difference between textual canon and verbal canon. Uh, for example, in the Harry Potter books, never once is it actually made clear that Dumbledore is gay. That's canon. The fact that J.K. Rowling then come out, came out and said Dumbledore is gay, there, there is that sort of muddy gray water question. Is that or is that not canon? Because it's not actually in the books. So it's not factual canon, um, but the author said it. So does that make it true? Does that make it part of the canon? Is that something people consider part of the canon? It's a really interesting line because um, obviously we can't go back in time and talk to Jane Austen and say, well, you know, we all think that uh, that Wickham is actually, you know, gay or whatever. Um, Jane Austen can't define that for us because we can't speak to her. So is that or is that not actual factual canon? It's interesting because you can actually have things that contradict their own canon. In the canon of Star Trek, you actually have multiple different universe canons. And fans will debate uh, whether or not things are canon based on expanded universe materials. Star Wars fans experienced that problem recently when Disney bought Star Wars because Disney went to the trouble of declaring that all of the expanded universe materials and books are no longer canon. So when they make those new movies, the only material that they're looking at uh, as canon are the original movies and the prequels. Um, and so for so long, all of these things that were considered canon by Star Wars fans are now officially not canon. So it's interesting that you point out, JM, that whether or not something is canon is not as simple as this is the text the thing came from. Fans actually live and breathe that debate a little bit in the writing of fan fiction, filling in those gray areas of what could or could not be canon, which leads us into talking a little bit about headcanons. Uh, headcanons are when people get into their own head about a character, and they have a particular canon that they maybe believe to be text that is not necessarily in the text. Uh, you, you can also have fanon, which is essentially what happens when a headcanon gets accepted by fandom at large in a way that makes it appear to be canon, even though it's not. Um, when I was publishing my Pride and Prejudice fanfic, I was doing it with source books publishers, and they had also published a book called Mr. Darcy Takes a Wife which is very, very popular and really good. And so Mr. Darcy Takes a Wife was actually not based on the book. It was based on the 1995 Pride and Prejudice miniseries. And in the 1995 Pride and Prejudice miniseries, they had established the name of the family of the, the Fitzwilliams. It wasn't in the book. It was in the miniseries. And the author of the book, I happen to know, had not read the book, Pride and Prejudice. She had only seen the miniseries. And so she had written Mr. Darcy Takes a Wife based on the miniseries. So she used Matlock as their name. Now, but this had also basically become fanon. Everyone was using the last name Matlock, even though there was no source material for it. So my, my editor came to me and says, you can't use Matlock because... It looks like you're copying off Mr. Darcy Takes a Wife, and that's a copyrighted property. Someone else wrote it. And I said, uh, she's not the only person who's used the name Matlock. And it's gotten to the point where if I don't use the name Matlock, it's going to look weird. My fans have just accepted that this is the last name, and people are going to notice, and it's going to stick out and detract from the story. And also, she can't copyright a name. Individual people can't copyright individual names. So I have the right to use it, and my fans are going to expect it. And I went over with that, and I got to keep the name. Interesting. 
Now let's talk a little bit about the roots of fan fiction, where it started and how it evolved into the thing that we're talking about today. The most common place that the conversation usually starts when you start to read about the history of fan fiction is Star Trek. Star Trek was one of the earliest science fiction fandoms to really distribute and engage in the practice of writing and sharing fan fiction, and it did give us many of the most common tropes and ideas that you see proliferated in fan fiction today, including Slash. However, if you actually look back historically, Sherlock Holmes fans were most certainly writing and sharing fanfiction about that character way back in the 1800s. They sent it to magazines and formed entire communities around it, especially in the period between when Arthur Conan Doyle famously killed off the character and then decided to bring him back. Going back even further, though, an argument could actually be made that even William Shakespeare was a fanfiction writer. Many of his plays, such as those he wrote about the English kings, could actually be considered real-person fiction, or RPF, because they're based on the lives of real people. Many fandom historians now make the case that an enormous amount of fiction written prior to the 20th century, when copyright laws began to be codified and enforced, is actually fan fiction, because many of the great works of fiction we now study in schools are built upon the works that came before them. Well, you can go back even farther. I mean, the Bronte sisters had absolute crushes on the Duke of Wellington and wrote fanfiction about him. Uh, Further back, most of the Thousand and One Nights stories um, are actually a collection of uh, different stories that someone wrote down altogether. So that's many different authors. And of course, the Robin Hood tales are all separate um, short stories or different myths that were eventually collected under the name of one author. But even those, the um, the King Arthur legend, uh, everybody, there was somebody wrote it down in the Middle Ages and then in the 10th century and then in the 13th century and then they decided that King Arthur was a real dude who was buried in Glastonbury. I mean, the whole King Arthur canon is also an amalgam of different people's headcanons. Fun fact, in the Mar- United States of America, everything before, I think it's 1923, is now in the public domain. And the thing is that in the past, copyright was not so enforceable. In fact, in Shakespeare's time, he would only give the actors their parts, which is called sides today in, in uh, television writing, because he didn't want any of the actors to steal the play and produce it somewhere else. So copyright was very, very, very difficult to enforce, really, until the modern era. But as a result, we have a lot of stuff that we would consider fan fiction today. For example, Jane Austen, um, she published in the, the early 1800s, the first two decades. She, she passed away, and her stories sort of dropped out of existence. She had a nephew who wanted to get rich off her work, so he republished, and they re-entered cycle, and then the first Prime Prejudice fanfic is from 1914, Old Friends and New Fancies, by Sybil Britton, which is a fanfic of all of her works put together, and then the second one after that is, uh, in 1949, uh, Darcy Hart wrote Temberly Shades, but once people started enforcing copyright, it became much more difficult to publish and disseminate your work because it was illegal. And it wasn't really till the internet where media companies found out that it, they had more or less no way to enforce the co- their copyright law, depending on whether the site were willing to stand up to them, that fanfic really took off with all of these copyrighted properties. Now, let's move on. Uh, and move forward a bit and talk about why people so heavily associate the history of fan fiction to Star Trek. Um, In the early days of fan fiction, Star Trek was one of the first fandoms to rely on zines, fan-printed magazines, to disseminate fan fiction, and that was how Star Trek got around the issue of distributing fan fiction in that pre-internet era. And once the internet began to be more widely used, Star Trek fans made up some of the earliest and most prominent online communities. Really sharing Star Trek-related content is right up there with pornography in terms of being one of the very first things that people were really doing online and getting excited about. Well, and I think um, if we're going to talk about Star Trek as sort of the first place that fandom really organized and came together, you have to also talk about that Star Trek was one of the first places where cosplay became a mainstream event where fan art became a mainstream event, where the masquerade was invented, where the actual science fiction convention itself 
really took shape. Obviously, there were comic book conventions and everything before that, but this was the first place that the convention as we see it today, cosplay as we see it today, fan fiction and fan art and fan comics as we see them today, came from. Um, it's also the first place where fan critique and meta work first really appeared in the reviews of the episodes of the zines. And I found that really fascinating. Like, what, what magic did Gene Roddenberry, what was he able to infuse this series with that for the first time, such a large number of people took this as a catalyst for, for creativity? I mean, this is really, the Star Trek fandom is really one of the very first fandoms that did not just consume passively. And that's fascinating and wonderful. And I don't know, I mean, to take a stab in the dark, I'd say that's maybe because Gene Roddenberry's series is so much about the hope of the future and creating a community and a place for everybody, that the community and the place for everybody was like, okay, yeah, let's do the thing. What's interesting to me about you saying that, JM, is that the next thing I actually wanted to talk about was the idea that fan fiction is also something that is very heavily regarded as being a female pastime. So you have terms like fangirl that are very much associated with the fanfiction community and make fanfiction something that's connected for a lot of people to how women consume media. And Star Trek was one of the first fandoms to generate and popularize slash fanfiction. So male-male romantic fanfiction, often written by people who identify as women. So the fact that Star Trek seems to be the originator of that makes me wonder if part of the reason some of the community built up around it has to do with the fact that, at least in my own experiences, talking to and being friends with older Star Trek fans, Star Trek seems to be a fandom that, within the science fiction community, especially at the time, disproportionately attracted female fans. I feel like that core relationship in the original series of Bones and Spock and Kirk drew in a lot more female fans than would have at the time otherwise been, for example, reading Asimov or interacting with science fiction in other ways. Well, I think a lot of that comes from the fact that Star Trek was about a peaceful mission. Yeah, they were on a military vessel, but it wasn't about bang, bang, kill them all. It was, uh, it was a story about culture and discussion and those, air quotes, traditionally feminine traits of passivity, peace, and discussion. I also uh, have something on this. Science fiction has always been a boys' club. That is an ongoing fight in the science fiction community. If you look up Hugo Awards, you'll find a long, complicated situation there. And Gene Roddenberry was in that club. Gene Roddenberry was a sci-fi writer, and he all of his friends were sci-fi writers. Um, what's his name? The guy who sues everybody. Harlan Ellison wrote for Star Trek. <laughs> if you were uh, a guy, and you had a lot of guy friends who were writing sci-fi, and you needed to pay your bills in the 50s, you could write a story, sell it, get some money. So, it was, it was a boys club, and women were not invited to be part of that. I'm, I'm sure that uh, female authors in sci-fi would be more than happy to talk at length about that, but their voices really weren't part of science fiction, even though it was so new and cutting edge, but a lot of the reason that the writers were published was because they all knew each other and could recommend each other. You know, women weren't part of that. Women were not part of that group. They're, in some ways, very much so still not. So... For women, I'm sure that women wanted to write sci-fi too, but because of the conventions of the time, didn't imagine that they could actually sell a story or uh, get friendly with Gene Roddenberry and ha submit an idea and say, can we run this? So do you think, DJ, that fan fiction has risen as a result of women building their own writing community? and maybe wanting a place to share their own stories outside of that kind of sense of a boys' club? It's hard to say that it was, an, it was a conscious response. It was probably an unconscious response. I think it was a, probably a bit of a perfect zeitgeist. I mean, because in the 60s, you have um, these sorts of stories. You have, it exactly as DJ said, uh, the women who wanted to write but couldn't break into the old boys' club. You've got the... Um, you suddenly got uh, women who are disenfranchised with being housewives and who want to speak about their own experience from their own point of view. I mean, that's why you probably get a lot of domestic 
thick and a lot of, um, we called it curtain thick in SGU. I don't know mm-hmm. what other fandoms call it. But mm-hmm. you're sort of looking at what it means to live the kind of life that I, as a woman, am living in the 50s, 60s, 70s versus what I see on television. I mean, does Spock have to clean his socks? He doesn't clean his socks. Who cleans his socks? Um, can we write a story about cleaning <laughs> socks? And, and then, of course, also looking at, you see these hyper-masculine characters on television, not just Kirk and Spock, but you see it in, in all of these, especially science fiction and fantasy uh, universes, where being a domestic kind of person is not an asset. So it's taking unrelatable characters and giving them relatable traits, like having them fall in love. And, um, you know, one of the things with these male-heavy casts is that if you're going to romance up somebody the only other person to romance up is a dude so that's where slash comes from i read a i read a, a thing the other day that explained that that's entirely the correlation uh that's the lack of female characters in popular fandoms and how that is a good amount of the reason that gay ships are so popular like if there's statistically more male characters than female ones that are popular characters who have a lot of like airtime and get a lot of attention and then there's these female ones that are more minor characters that you kind of connect with less and you find less shippable, I guess. Uh, that's It only makes sense that all the men get paired together. So it's a bit funny that male fans of things complain about all the fangirls watching shows just for the like handsome characters and for the uh, ability to ship them together because it is entirely like a patriarchal uh, ideal that created this overabundance of male characters in sci-fi and anime and movies and books and stuff. And, and of course, the male characters are the well-written ones too. They're the of ones course, with depth. Yes. How do you ship? How do you write a romance between a male and a female character when the male character is so 3D and the female character is a cardboard cutout with boobs? Yep. I do want to point out though that I have seen some criticisms of that argument that say that it may be an oversimplification. It's a starting place or argument, sure. definitely. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I wanted to talk about as well is the fact that not only is fan fiction written by a lot of women, but it is also written by, or assumed to be written by, a lot of younger women, so teenage girls. And I know that for me, when I was a teenage girl, fan fiction was a huge part of my own discovery process and the evolution of my own sexuality. And I know that I've talked to a lot of people who feel the same way. So, to some degree, fan fiction was how I learned what romance was supposed to look like, what I was supposed to be looking for. And so you wonder if the level of male-male shipping is a way to, um, similarly to science fiction generally, address things that if you address them directly would be uncomfortable or difficult. So, as an example of what I mean, you can address an issue like 9-11 and post-terrorism questions about privacy and security in a show like Battlestar Galactica in a way that you couldn't in something like The Hurt Locker because you have that distance from real life that allows you to really ask more interesting questions and play with it and bring things up that otherwise would be really terrifying in a real-world setting. So I feel like for a lot of women, Slash is a way to strip away some of the gender politics and dynamics um, from their own ideas about sexuality and some of the uncomfortableness that they might otherwise have with things like having a rape fantasy or questioning your own sexuality. And it's also a way to take away the intimidation factor that younger girls might have related to men. Because if you're at that age where you're still intimidated by boys or men sexually because you're inexperienced, Writing about two men is also a way to make them whatever you need them to be and to make them approachable. I think for a lot of geeks, a lot of little baby geeks, fan fiction was our definition, was the Harlequin books of our generation, um, and just just in that equation. And um, I, I guess this is where I'm going to plug myself. Uh, I'm in an anthology called The Secret Loves of Geek Girls, and I actually am writing a chapter called How Fan Fiction Made Me Gay. So... Um, I think for a lot of people, and not everybody, I'm not saying everybody, but for a lot of people, and especially for myself, um, and Katie's pointing to Katie, um, that uh, that fan fiction was a, a place to read action-adventure stories and, and vampire stories and haunting stories and AUs and all of this sort of thing, but also a place where I could explore sexuality or explore stories of romance that I couldn't, I absolutely, I just couldn't get it out of a Harlequin because, or, or any kind of Boons and Mills or romance book because no one was, no one was writing stories about bisexual goth girls. 
Now, JM, you pointed out that Katie is pointing at herself, but um, DJ, you look like you have something to add. I write a lot of gen fic. I, when I was a kid, um, it was not as accessible to to write anything sexual. It was all to be found on other pages, and it was very, very segregated off, and there were all kinds of warnings, and I thought that everyone writing that stuff was an adult because I was really naive. <laughs> and then I was in some creative writing class as an adult. I was about 21, 22. And there was a, there was a 13 year old in the class who was writing Mary Pippet slash really graphic stuff. And I was like, wait, I don't think, I don't know anything about this type of sexuality in, in real life. I've only seen it in fanfic. And I'm going to assume that she's only seen it in fanfic. But she's she's going. <laughs> Sometimes it sort of feeds on itself. And, every, like, I've had a couple gay friends be like, this is not what gay sex is like. I'm like, oh, that's, uh... That's but no more than porn is what, like, het sex is like. Porn yeah. is nothing like what real sex is like. I want to I want to yeah. pause and make something clear. I just want to be absolutely clear about this. I'm not saying that uh, certain types of fanfic should be hidden behind a wall, whatever. I am a big believer of anyone can read whatever they want to read, and if it's banned, they should be more likely to read it. <laughs> uh, that was just my experience, and I sort of came in late to the show in terms of all the sexual fanfic. And this is not my area of interest in fanfic, but it is other people's area of interest. And that just because I don't write it doesn't make it any less valid or important. And I encourage everyone to write and read whatever they want. So let's talk then about shipping in general, as opposed to just slash. Um, now the verb to ship or shipping is basically a way of saying that you are into a particular romantic relationship. Um, that's where the word comes from. Um, a lot of fan fiction, some might argue the majority of fan fiction, does involve shipping. In fact, the name of this podcast, OTP, is a play on the fan fiction term One True Pairing, which refers not just to any ship, but to a particular type of ship, which overtakes a person, uh, where they headcanon a relationship to the point where it's almost the only thing that they can see or that they love when they go back and consume the original media. Uh, Genfic is the opposite of shipping. It's fan fiction that is completely neutral to romance. Uh, now, genfic often will attempt to adhere more to canon. It can sometimes be simply trying to tell an action-adventure story, be set in an alternate universe. It can be trying to get into a particular character's head. Um, the only main thing about genfic is that it's not concerned with just being romantic or sexual. Now, DJ, you and I have shared our frustrations before, as fans who primarily read and write genfic, about the fact that there is sometimes a perception, especially by the mainstream, that fanfiction equals shipping in all cases. And that's just not true. Right, and I'm not disinterested in romance. If it naturally occurs in the story, then I'll write about it without being explicit, but sometimes it just doesn't naturally occur. I just don't see a world around me where everyone is perpetually leaping on each other, so I wouldn't want to write that. Well, just to give us some additional context for this conversation, there was a study done in 2010 of self-reported data available on fanfiction.net, and in that study, around 80% of those who had self-reported their age were between 13 and 17 years old, with the average age being 15.8. And you got to keep in mind as well that that study, um, they did actually state that the minimum age allowed on the site is 13, so likely there are many people below 13 who either falsely reported or didn't self-report. And that's the largest fanfiction site on the internet. Oh god, that's scary. Now, there was a similar archive of our own census done in 2013, and DJ, you'll be happy to note there that the age group with the highest proportion of explicit fic writers was 40 to 49 years old, and that site did tend to skew older, um, and fanfiction.net does actually have rules against explicit fic. So the data would seem to both support fanfiction being something read by younger fans, but also support the idea that it is actually possible that the explicit fic is being written if not entirely read, by older fans. 
And in the AO3 census as well, there was an analysis done of gender and sexuality, and it revealed that only 33.1% of respondents stated that they were heterosexual, um, and actually 36% indicated that they were bisexual. And there were also four times as many respondents who indicated a non-binary gender as there were men in the survey, because men only came in at 3%. So clearly there are a lot of women and people of alternative genders and alternative sexualities who are exploring that through fan fiction. And I'm going to link to both of those surveys in the show notes for this episode because they're really fascinating. Um, So I think that you're correct, JM, that there are clearly many, many teen girls who are out there questioning their sexuality or their gender, who are looking for content that reflects their experiences. And I would say that fan fiction does give them a voice and a connection to a community that is definitely probably not being represented in their high school or on their college campus. And the nice thing about that is, of course, fan fiction is a short form or it's a shorthand of storytelling. So if I wanted to write a novel about being a 13-year-old girl who is realizing for the first time that she might be bi, that's, that's, as a 13-year-old writer who's never written anything before, that is such a daunting prospect to sit down and write a book and then try to get it represented represented and then try to get it published, et cetera, et cetera. Or I could do it through fan fiction where I take the building blocks of a story and the building blocks of characters and I rearrange them and I force my own perspective into the gaps in the narrative or I give my voice to one of the characters and I speak through them. I mean, that's one of the wonderful things about fan fiction is it's this great equalizer. It doesn't matter how good a storyteller you are or how good a writer you are, you have the shorthand. It already exists. You've been given everything you need to make a story on a silver platter. And so you can just focus on the message that you want to send or the story you want to tell. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about fan fiction. Well, and that's where I think the anonymity also becomes so important to what fan fiction is and to the community. Um, That 13-year-old girl, I might read her fic as a grown adult and have no idea that it's written by a 13-year-old girl. I mean, that's why I'm against a lot of the ways that the mainstream media likes to pick out bad fic or present bad fic as an object of mockery, because they do that without knowing the perspective of the author. They could be 13 years old, they could have English be their second language, they could be autistic, or they could even be a troll writing that way on purpose to get that kind of attention. So from that perspective, I think that reading fan fiction and loving it also opens you up. Because for me as an adult reader, having no idea who the author of a particular work is, I'm now reading an enormous variety of different perspectives that I normally would maybe close myself off to if I was looking at an author's name in a bookstore. Or couldn't even have access to. I mean, walk into a bookstore and find me a short story collection written by... Uh, a, a lesbian of uh, Middle Eastern descent. Well, that's pretty easy for me, but I live in New York City. <laughs> well, okay, yes. I live in rural Ontario, so. So we've talked at length about what fan fiction is and some of the more common forms it takes and perspectives you can find, but there's a fundamental question that I want to make sure that we cover because this is, after all, supposed to be a fan fiction 101. So the question now is, where do you find fan fiction? Fanfiction.net first appeared in 1998, and for decades it has served as the Internet's uh, first large clearinghouse for fan fiction across various fandoms. It's still in existence and is currently still popular with many different fandom communities, particularly the Harry Potter and anime fandoms. At the same time, fan fiction has also been housed in a variety of places over the years. Um, LiveJournal and Tumblr, the blogging platforms, are both popular right now, and there are still some fandom-specific archives out there as well. Uh, We've talked a little bit about AO3. AO3 is short for Archive of Our Own, and it is essentially fanfiction.net or ff.net's biggest competitor right now. It's a non-profit site run by an organization called the Organization for Transformative Works, so the OTW, and it also contains fan fiction across various fandoms, and it lets users comment on it and bookmark it, and it's been around since 2007. Um, Wattpad is also a site that's uh, used now for fan fiction, which was originally used by authors to share original work, and they've decided to allow fan fiction and reach out to that community, and so certain communities have also migrated there. 
Essentially, each of these platforms offers different features, different benefits for both the writer or the reader, different search functions, um, and different fandoms kind of have decided to make different places their own. Um, but I'd like to talk a little bit about where each individual uh, contributor we have today finds fan fiction and their experience with finding it in the past. So let's start with you, DJ. It's really changed over the years tremendously. Panthers.net was great when it started in that we all needed a central place for fandom. I was running some fandom archives for Squat Cats, and it was a tremendous amount of work, but I just wanted there to be one place to find all of the Squat Cat fanfic. And uh, there was huge drama surrounding it at times, and I was really happy when Panfiction.net went up, and I said, okay, we all can agree in one place, and it's not too image heavy because this was back when your browser wouldn't load if there was a lot of images, and the formatting is the same for everything because this is back when formatting really was not standardized at all by Microsoft Word, and people would submit all kinds of unformatted things, and then, you know, other technologies developed. Um, people started, you know, using blogs, we started using LiveJournal, I remember the days of WebRings. Some people just didn't want to congregate on fanfiction.net, and in Pride and Prejudice, I remember I was interested in several years, it was spread all over the place, uh, because a lot of it was very, very old. But today I've found usually a fandom will just sort of choose a place, and it's usually AO3, like Night Vale, Right Out, Dead, Nightbell fandom sort of said, okay, AO3, that's where we're posting our stuff. And what about you, JM? What's your experience been like in terms of where you've historically found fan fiction from when you started reading it to now? There was also, oh, back in the day, uh, the BraveNet chat boards. And then I used to belong to uh, Yahoo mailing groups. So we would write a chapter and then put it into a newsletter and mail it out to everybody in the group. Um... And then eventually I pulled all those stories together and put them on fanfiction.net. And then I got frustrated with fanfiction.net and just how arbitrary they seem to be in enforcing their rules. That got very frustrating for me. And of course, how ad heavy and then just how glitchy it ended up turning. And I was, and then I was living overseas where the firewalls were different and in a completely different alphabet. So I couldn't figure the damn thing out. So I moved to live journal and then, um, yeah, and then uh, kind of petered out as a fanfiction writer, but never never left it as a reader. And then when AO3 came around, I was like, oh, this is really nice. Um, I really like the bookmarking function. That's, for me, the number one amazing part of, and the subscription function. Um, so the new chapter of the story that I like just goes straight into my inbox. Yay! Um, oh. And it's like the best thing ever when you get that email in your inbox. It's like archive of our own, update for, and you're like, Ooh, which one is it? It's like Christmas. So I, I personally like AO3. But just going on what DJ was saying about some of the newer fandoms being on AO3, I think it's because for a lot of newer writers, fanfiction.net and LiveJournal, those, those places just aren't in on their social radar. Like Night Vale came out after... AO3 existed, so why would fandom be anywhere else? The interesting thing to me about AO3 as well is that um, by having multiple fandoms in one place, kind of all consolidated, it not only allows you to read things across multiple fandoms, but to follow authors across multiple fandoms. So as an example, back in the days of GeoCities or even back in the days of specific archives for each fandom, if I wrote for multiple fandoms, I might have different usernames for each fandom. Um, there wasn't likely to be a lot of crossover uh, for people and opportunity for me as an author to build a reputation outside of that one fandom versus um, what sites like AO3 and fanfiction.net do is they let you follow a particular author so that you can become a fan of that author and not just um, them within the particular fandom that you, they write in. Well, and something fascinating about that is that they can follow you into a fandom they know nothing about and then get into that fandom. And that does actually happen, because I know Daredevil fans in that fandom who write fic now for that, where they had said that they had no intention of watching Daredevil on Netflix. And it wasn't until the fic started appearing in their Marvel 
kind of feed on AO3 that they started reading them. And when they read more about the characters, they said, well, I have to see this now. I have to know what this fandom is about. And I know I in particular have done that. I mean, I love reading Pacific Rim fusion fix, but I've never seen Pacific Rim. <laughs> I feel like I know about it without having seen it. And I will watch it. Um, it's on my list of things to get to, but I still read those fix. And the same thing happened to me with Sense8. I was reading Sense8 Fusion Fix before I ever was looking into actually watching Sense8. So yeah, I think people will follow particular authors or particular um, maybe crossovers or fusions, and that's how they will come to a new fandom, is from the fanfiction first, which seems a kind of a backwards way to do it, but it does happen. I still kind of don't know what Sentinel is. You know, DJ, I think at this point that a lot of younger fans probably have no idea that Sentinel AU fix come from um, an actual fusion with the universe of the TV show, The Sentinel. It's so interesting that we were talking about headcanons, what The Sentinel was about, and what the headcanon Sentinel trope is in fanfiction. Like, they kind of breathe on each other, but they're not the same thing. Um, so I think that's one of the really fascinating things about fan fiction is how things evolve. Um, what you're seeing as a quote-unquote sentinel fusion barely has anything to do with the original precepts and concepts of the sentinel universe. And I think that is absolutely fascinating. But exactly like you said, Maude, a number of, especially young people coming into fandom now, they probably have no concepts or no idea that Sentinel was a television show. We watched it right after Highlander. Um, now, one thing that we haven't really talked too much about is we've been talking about AO3, but as we mentioned, LiveJournal and Tumblr are also used. Um, I think that the way that they get used by fic writers now tends to be a little bit different. So I think on fanfiction.net and Archive of Our Own, um, you're kind of sharing fic, versus I think on LiveJournal and Tumblr, and other sites as well, like uh, DreamWidth, what you're seeing is really more of a community around things like um, prompts, kink memes, um, challenges. So a lot of the things that are going on are less about just presenting a fic to somebody and more about building that sense of community and about readers really interacting with writers and giving inspirational ideas to writers. So in the case of uh, prompts or kink memes, what's happening is that generally a writer is coming in and getting inspired by a variety of different prompts and sharing their own prompts where they're not writing the whole story, but they just have ideas they need to get off of their chest. And a lot of the times um, kink memes or prompts will turn into discussion about the show or the movie or the fandom, discussion about things like headcanons. Um, and it's a really great place to kind of get inspired and see what people are looking for from the fandom in terms of the fan fiction they want to read. Um, with challenges, that's a whole other beast. That's where somebody is coming in and running a challenge around a particular theme or idea or a particular word even. Um, and people are submitting fix for the challenge and there may or may not be prizes associated with that. It may just be bragging rights. But again, it's a way of generating ideas and generating fan fiction and turning people who maybe are just readers into writers. And you know what, Katie, I feel bad. We haven't really heard from you too much so far um, because we've been talking about things, I think, that kind of skew a little more into the history. And you're obviously quite a bit younger than me and the other two contributors. So did you want to talk a little bit about kind of prompts and kink memes? Uh, prompt memes? Prompt memes were a really good resource to have as a writer when you're really just getting into a fandom and maybe you have your own headcanons and maybe you have your own plot ideas and stuff, but you don't really have them super developed enough to write something. So from from the perspective of someone who will lit who at the point when I was in the Hobbit kink, like kink meme, I would literally write anything. I remember I had this one friend who was a writer and someone prompted them something that wasn't really in their, like, wasn't really their bag for writing. And they were like, oh, just prompt it to Katie and she'll do something with it. And I did. But um, it's it's a good resource to have because you have, you know what the fan is interested in reading. And it's most important to write what you want to write and write for yourself. But sometimes it feels good to contribute that way. Because uh, you know you're satisfying at least one other person in your fandom, which is like something you don't necessarily get from fix, but you write for, for yourself. 
Um, another good thing about prompts is, uh, like in relation to Tumblr, having an ask box is like you can have someone submit a prompt directly to you and you can publish it through the like responding to ask function. And I think that's really awesome. Like you can tag it. It'll be like directly like into the tags where you want it to be, where you want people to see it. And it's Tumblr's not necessarily a great platform for fan fiction when you're just publishing it, unless you have like an established base of people who follow you, who follow you for your fan fiction. Because um, a lot of people just scroll through Tumblr and don't necessarily stop to read long posts or posts that are under a read more. Yeah. I hate that you can't like you can reply to some posts, but you can't reply to all posts. And it's like I want people to comment on my fix and tell me what they think of them. But you can't really do that on Tumblr unless someone wants to reblog it and add a comment that way, and nobody ever does that. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about the history of fan fiction and where you can find it. Um, a few different kind of tropes and common themes of fan fiction have come up. But let's talk a little more at length about those. Because there are a few that are very heavily associated with fan fiction that are very common. And I know that, in particular, JM, you have some very strong opinions about uh, a particular common character known in fan fiction as a Mary Sue. So do you want to talk a little bit more about what a Mary Sue is? Sure. Um, I, I would call it less of a trope and more of just um, the sign of a, a, a fan getting into the fandom for the first time. But a Mary Sue, uh, it comes from the story by Paula Smith published in 1996 called A Trekkie's Tale about Ensign Mary Sue who uh, came onto the Enterprise and everyone was in love with her and she was perfect and she defeated the villain and everything was great. Yay! And uh, this this story was sort of very lovingly lambasting the kinds of wish fulfillment stories that Paul Smith was seeing in the Star Trek zines at the time. And so what a, what a Mary Sue is, is a author representative character from outside the fic. So it's not one, or sorry, outside the media text. It's not one of the, you know, it's not Harry or Hermione or Ron being co-opted by the author and the author writing from that character's point of view. It's them creating another character and inserting them into the story. Generally speaking, one who is the perfect, quote-unquote, fantasy version of themselves, uh, without admitting to that, of course. A Mary Sue will always be better at the thing that the protagonist of the show does. So she's a better doctor, she's a better Star Trek captain, she's a better samurai, she's a better wizard. Um, but that's because that comes from that deep place in our hearts where we we want to be acknowledged and loved by the main characters, and obviously we know that the only way we can do that is to be on par with them. And the reason that main characters are main characters is because they're already the best of the best. So I think that Mary Sue really is... it's. When you look at children playing on the playground, the first instinct of children who are engaged in elastic play is to say, oh, well, I'm a Ninja Turtle. Oh, well, I'm a Ninja Turtle, too. I'm a Ninja Turtle. Well, there's only four Ninja Turtles. You can't be another Ninja Turtle. Well, then I'm a different Ninja Turtle. I'm going to be the Ninja Turtle uh, Picasso, and that's who I am. When we're children, we want to be included. We want to play in this world, and we want to engage with the characters that we love on their own level. And I feel like a lot of early impulses and instincts towards um, fan fiction come from this desire to be a part of that which we love. Um, who, who didn't want to go to the Star Trek Academy? Who didn't want to go to Hogwarts? We wanted to be there. And when we write our first stories and we have our first fantasies, we're not pretending to be the characters, we're inserting ourselves into the world because we want to be the equal, we want to have the admiration and sometimes the romantic attention of the characters that we admire. And I think that's where, where a Mary Sue comes from. A lot of people dump on Mary Sues, and I think every, every writer in the world writes Mary Sues. I mean, hello, Catherine Moreland. Who is that but Jane Austen's Mary Sue in an amazing way? Mm. Um, and I think we as writers sort of our first impulse is to write about ourselves and then we evolve out of it so all this dumping on mary sues uh, <laughs> i think that they're vital important interesting 
uh, aspects of an early writer's career. Can I come in and say something contrary? So I've always been very serious about writing. Uh, I am a full-time writer, uh, part-time doing other things to pay for the writing. But um, one of the earliest writing lessons that I got was write what you know. And that was a terrible lesson that I wish had not been taught to me and everyone else. Because at the time, I was a little kid without a very interesting life. And... I've made it my business to not take that advice for pretty much my whole writing career. I see facets of myself in various characters. I see issues that I deal with on a psychological level or an unconscious level up here in stories. But I very rarely write anything that's about me or someone who is like me and... Uh, I really had to push myself to write outside my comfort zone all the time. I think it's made me a better writer. Well, moving away from talking about Mary Sue's, um, let's talk about another trope that leans more towards what you were talking about, DJ. The idea of writing something more original, writing something a little outside of your comfort zone. Um, let's talk about something fan fiction does very, very well, which is alternate universe stories. So um, AUs, I think we've referred to them a couple times so far in the conversation. Um, let's discuss what we think about those kinds of what-if stories or um, stories that set the canon that you love in a complete other universe. Katie, I know we haven't heard a lot from you so far um, in this episode, but I know that you have a lot to say about AUs, so why don't you go first? Okay, um, AUs are a deep love of mine. Interestingly enough, my fandom just finished, like my fandom being shameless, just finished a writing event called AUGUST. I don't know if other fandoms do this, I think they might, which is like the entire month of August, everybody kind of, like, stops what they're doing with their other whips and their other things that they were going to start and writes nothing but AUs. And it's beautiful. Oh, my God. Like, you need an excuse to write a bunch of weird, far-fetched AUs. Well, here it is. Go for it. So I've been writing and reading a ton of AUs lately, which is good for this. Well-written AUs can be made more effective when little details from canon are incorporated into them. So you can take fandom staples like coffee shop AUs or, like, working in an office AUs or uh, met on a train AUs, those kinds of things, and they can be consistent with the source material by little things that happen in them. Maybe you have a coffee shop AU and it's Stucky, so like Steve and Bucky from Captain America and Marvel uh, MCU, but maybe they're like, you take away the, the, the serum and the Avengers and the Winter Soldier of it and make it just too... Ex-military dudes, maybe Steve works at the cop. no, Bucky works at the coffee shop. Yes, he does. It's not explicitly addressed that either of them are, like, PTSD sufferers or anything, but they would be in this fic, and they help themselves work through that. Like, it's, you take the elements of the, of characters and of the ship and of a universe and put it somewhere else. And that can be really interesting, because you can be like, oh, there's a character who likes to work on cars in their free time. In this AU, they work as a mechanic, which they might not necessarily do in their main canon. So it's a good way to expand on fandom and put it in different circumstances and put characters in different circumstances while maintaining their original characters and their well, roles. It's, it's an interesting method of, of getting at sort of character study stories because you strip yeah. away the trappings of the universe, but you retain the kernel of the character. Yes. Another thing I wanted to address is if I, I get the impression that we're kind of like a mixed bag when it comes to shipping and things like that. But when you're a shipper and you have your OTP, it's like AUs are like a vehicle to prove that your OTP is eternal. They do whatever in their own canon, but when you take them out of that canon, they still manage to meet. And I know you you write it so it happens that way, and other writers write it so it happens that way, but it's like taking them and putting them in a different universe means that they're still going to find each other, they're still going to meet, they're still going to fall for each other. It's like 50 different universes in different scenarios where they meet differently and interact differently, but they still manage to be together, and it makes your favorite ship really universal and unstoppable. Well, personally, I think one of the big benefits of writing an AU is that you're not writing canon. 
I mean, you are and you aren't. So one of the things that you don't have to do when you're writing an AU story is feel so beholden to every little detail of something that may have happened in the original text because you can throw it out, right? Um, so you don't have to rewatch the show or reread the book and worry about, oh, am I going to contradict the order that this happened in in canon? Or, um, oh, is this characterization 100% dead on to how this character behaves in canon? It gives you a little bit more freedom to move around and maneuver and make a universe your own. And I find those sorts of stories boring. I mean, I have watched the first episode of Sherlock. I don't need to read 700 stories where Sherlock and John meet for the first time and rehash that same conversation. We all know it. Let's move on. Um, there's nothing wrong with those stories, but personally speaking, that's why I like the AU. I love seeing how people take that same dialogue and do it in a different situation. It's taking something that we already know we love and, um, and getting to do it a different way, a new way. I'm really not a huge fan of AUs. If the writing is good, I'll read it and I'll enjoy it. So I could be sold on any AU to the point where I say, well, it's not a really fanfic anymore. If you swapped out these names, there would be no relation. But it's good writing and I'm enjoying reading it. So there's no reason for me to stop just because we've really reached the outside of what is fanfic. You know, we're at the edges of what is fanfic. Um, another thing about AUs and like fanfiction in general is it's a good way to cope with when, when canon is shitty. When things are happening that you don't want to happen, like I've mentioned a million times that Shameless is my main fandom, and we just had the season five finale, which broke up the main pairing that everybody loves. The, well, not the only pairing that everybody loves the show for, but like the only like gay pairing in the show, and they broke them up, and so many people are like, okay, season five never happened. And so many fix are like, all right, here's the end of season four, let's keep... Con like, there's an entire group, there's a group of three writers in the Phantom who are rewriting all of season five. Like, they come out once a week, the same night that the episodes would come out, and they're, like, a whole chapter ad addressing everything that happened in the episodes and changing to make it less problematic, because there's a lot of less-than-great things that happen in the show and could be done better. And that's such a thing that only fanfiction can do, where you can take parts of canon that you don't like and just pretend they don't exist. Well, I think a really classic example of that, too, is that um, when Avengers happened, even before they had announced that they were bringing back Phil Coulson for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the Coulson Lives tag on AO3 was already a thing. And I don't remember reading a single Avengers fanfiction after that movie came out that really didn't have Coulson in it. And something that's really unique and great to fan fiction, a lot of the time, these fics would have no explanation whatsoever as to how he lived, um, no explanation whatsoever as to why he was there. It was just that fans decided that he didn't die, and so they sort of mass fanoned that he was not dead and just willfully ignored the canon as a group. But going back to what DJ was saying about um, AUs that are so AU they're practically not based on the source material... I think, again, that's one of the amazing powers of fan fiction is that I, I am a professionally published science fiction and fantasy author, and I am not shy in saying that I got, I, I studied writing, not at university, but through fan fiction. And one of the amazing things about fan fiction is that it does train you to be a better writer. It trains you to take crit. It trains you to respond. It trains you to take, um, advice from beta readers, it trains you to think differently about narratives, but also to just understand what narrative and character and formatting and grammar and punctuation is. And one of the great things about the AUs that are so far out that they're practically not canon is that I feel like I'm reading a brand new published author's debut novel. Mm -hmm. And I have more than once, and perhaps I've scared people, and if it's you, I apologize, messaged people and said, if you, would, if you were to scratch the serial numbers off this fic, if you were to do a finer place on the, t on the names and send it to me, I would be happy to be a critique partner with you and happy to help you through the query process for getting an agent. And there are some people, I know some fanfiction writers who are like, nope, I'm happy just being a fanfiction writer. This makes me happy. This is, a, this is my happy place, and I have no intent 
to go pro, but there have been people who who said, you know, really, you think I have what it takes to hack it as a pro? Yep, because I I I read, I have read better fan fiction than I have books that I've bought off the shelf. So I think that's a fantastic place for us to finish this week's episode, our very first episode. And I want to say a great big thank you to our three contributors again, and that's DJ Clausen, J.M. Fry, and Katie Mayo. If you'd like to hunt down their fan fiction or any of their bookmarks on AO3 or follow them on Tumblr, we have bios and information about all of our contributors on our Tumblr. Uh, our Tumblr is otpodcast.tumblr.com. We're also available on Facebook or Twitter as the OT Podcast, and you can subscribe on SoundCloud or, hopefully, iTunes. Uh, so please check us out. Please support us any way that you can if you're interested in this show and you want to see it continue. I am really excited about the journey that we're all about to go on. Uh, the upcoming episodes we have on tap are great. We're going to talk about gender and fan fiction next week. We're going to talk about beta reading and Harry Potter fandom and fanons and headcanons and OTPs and shipping and all kinds of fan fiction related things that I think our listeners are really going to enjoy. Um, another big thank you to Peter Chikowski. He is otherwise known as the webcomic artist Rock Paper Cynic. And he did our theme song for us and also our logos. So please check him out as well. And I am your mod again, Enthusiasm Girl. Thank everybody so much for listening. And check us out next Tuesday and keep listening next week.